You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at Turak South Yarra Library, Melbourne, as part of the Untitled Festival on the 16th of November, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that's very difficult at times, but has great knowledge and gentleness. Please welcome your hosts, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Hello and welcome to the glamorous Turak slash South Yarra Library, a library so nice they named it twice. And it is particularly nice to be in the basement of the library. (laughs) It actually, it's quite amazing. Uh, There's so much room here. And I don't know if you've been upstairs and wandered around, John, but it's a a, a a beautiful library. library. I like to think this more as a bunker myself. Mm. Yeah, well, if civilization ends, this is where knowledge will survive. (laughs) Underground in a library. Oh, man, I, that's where I want to be when the, the zombie apocalypse happens. Yeah, Pick but... your mating partner now, people. <laughs> and we are here, of course, to celebrate what I learned from Doctor Who. I've yes. learned many a thing from Doctor Who. Ben, have you learned many a thing? Oh, yeah, lo- loads. Loads. I've learned loads from Doctor <laughs> Who. In my whole life, i learned heaps. Yeah, wow, heaps and loads. Heaps and loads. That is a lot. See, Which is to say I learned it in Australia and the UK. Yeah, see, I spent a fair amount of time in Wagga, so I would have to say I learned Wadzo. Wadzo? Wadzo. Wadzov. Wadzo. Oh, wow. You know, I, I lived near Wagga for a year. I never learned that expression. That's because you're not cool, Ben. <laughs> so, yeah. yes, but we are here to talk about what we've learned and there's many things that we've learned, John. But we also need to talk to other people as well to see what they've learned. That's right. Let's bring some other people in, shall we, Petra? Of course. Our first Splendid Chap is an editor and sometime writer whose parents argued about Star Trek over the dinner table and who started writing fan fiction at 12. This qualifies her to educate young whippersnappers on Tumblr about the dark days of VHS and dial-up. <laughs> She blogs about social justice, feminism and pop culture at noaward.net and contributed an essay to the anthology Chicks Unravel Time. In 2009, she was described as the worst person in Doctor Who fandom. She owns Billy Piper's entire discography. Our other splendid chap has been working as an actor and comedian for more than 10 years. He founded improv comedy troupe The Crew, musical comedy trio The Dodge, and sketch group The Hounds. Are we sensing a theme? <laughs> and has hosted The Mutant Way and Live on Bowen for Channel 31. His Doctor Who themed solo comedy show, Who Me, has had sellout seasons in Edinburgh and all over Australia and New Zealand, and has been seen by cast members of both Classic and New Who. He has also played the Doctor in both the improv comedy show Time Lord and as part of the hugely popular Preachers podcast, which he co-hosts with Benjamin Mayo McKay. One of them appeared on a current affair in a Slytherin Quidditch uniform, which she now regrets because she's clearly a Ravenclaw, (laughs) while the other pretends he doesn't enjoy looking like David Tennant. (laughs) They're Lisba and Rob Lloyd. So, welcome both. Liz, I want to start by asking, who called you the worst person in Doctor Who fandom? Well, I can't rightly say, because it was an anonymous person on the internet. Coward! (laughs) Coward! Yes, that was my reaction as well. I'd said some rather nasty things about several people's punctuation in their fan fiction. (laughs) 
take their right not to use commas very seriously. <laughs> and so, Lissos, how did you get into Doctor Who? Well, I watched it as a little girl with my dad, uh, ABC, four nights a week. I think I jumped in at uh, Paradise Towers. The very first thing I learned from Doctor Who was that yellow kangs are cowardly custards. <laughs> Red kangs the best. Red kangs the best. And then I was a Trekkie for a very long time, but the new Doctor Who came back and I just fell in love with the whole universe. Do you have a favourite Doctor? All of them. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> She's good, isn't she? And, and Rob, it's, it's not like you're the kind of person that would do, say, a whole show about how you got involved in Doctor Who and toured internationally. So how did you get into Doctor Who? <laughs> well, if you haven't seen the show, uh, <laughs> I'll basically just has, do that has, section. Wait, wait a minute. Has anyone here not seen the show? Go visit robloid.com.au for all information. Um, I got into Doctor Who uh, in a weird way. I got into it quite late. I didn't get into the classic cliche of growing up with it hiding behind the sofa. I got into it in 1996 and my first year of uni. So, oh, yeah, I really lived the university life. You know, <laughs> drinking, experimenting with drugs or sex. I got into Doctor Who. Um, a guy uh, I was really good friends with uh, was dealing with a breakup and he was really depressed. And so I thought the best way to get him over that was for him to just tell me everything about his main love, which was Doctor Who. So Ooh, after that five-hour conversation, uh, I knew everything, and I've been a fan ever since. And that was a great year. 96 was huge. We had not only uh, the telly movie come out with Paul McGann, who I love, um, and whoever, whoever doesn't like Paul McGann uh, sucks balls. Um, <laughs> it's also the year that um, John Pertwee passed away, and mm. he uh, became my favourite Doctor because I went and just watched all of his old episodes, and I fell in love with uh, John Pertwee, and he's my favourite Doctor. You guys, you just said, 96 was a great year. It was the year John Pooey died. <laughs> I, put the, I put that, I put the Paul McGann stuff first. It was a horrible year for Doctor Who, actually. <laughs> but for me, it was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've you, you dived in at the worst point, so it was all uphill from there. It was all uphill. All uphill from there, yeah. yeah. Well, we're here to talk about education and learning in Doctor Who, so maybe we should have a look about television and learning in general. Petra, what do you know? Groucho Marx once said, I find television very educating. Every time somebody turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. <laughs> but the history of education in television is a long one. Back in 1933, the University of Iowa became the first American university to broadcast educational television. Promoted as illustrated lectures, viewers could watch at home, but they would also have to tune into the university's radio station if they wanted to hear anything, as Iowa couldn't yet broadcast audio and video together. <laughs> television was so new, it was assumed that most viewers would have built their sets rather than having bought them from retailers such as JB Gramophones or Dick Smith's World of Wax Cylinders. Over in the UK, the BBC's first director-general, John Reith, was obsessed with education while not being that fussed about television. Malcolm Baird, son of television innovator John Logie Baird, recalled that his father and Reith had fought during their days as students at Glasgow Technical College, which may have partly explained Reith's coolness to this new marvel. He did, however, believe in education. In post-World War I Britain, education was viewed by many as the main instruments for hope and progress. In 1920, H.G. Wells wrote, Human history becomes more and more a race between education and catastrophe. 
So when the BBC launched in 1922, it did so under Reith's demand that it educate, inform and entertain, with everyone agreeing he saw the last part of that equation as a distant third to the other two. He also insisted on a standardised pronunciation by his announcers, which was the birth of BBC English. Not everyone loved Reith. For example, Winston Churchill, a star of TV's Doctor Who, often... (laughs) often derided Reith and referred to him as that wuthering height. (laughs) But the feeling was mutual, with Reith writing of Churchill, I absolutely hate him. Right there on Facebook... From the beginning, education was established as a core BBC department alongside music and drama. The BBC broadcasted lectures on many subjects including archaeology, astronomy and foreign languages and from 1929 their educational output was 80 hours a week. Education programming was an accepted and popular part of listening pleasure. John Stobart, Reith's education director, had a dream in 1924 of a wireless university where people would use broadcasting to complete a degree in the comfort of their own homes. The BBC realised this dream in 1970 with the launch of the Open University, but by now it was television that was the medium of choice. The DNA of Reith's BBC can even be seen in Doctor Who. Sidney Newman was looking for a new show that could be scheduled between jukebox jury and grandstand, which would need to appeal to children and adults alike. It wasn't expressly meant to be educational, yet it went to air with a history and science teacher in the cast and presented stories ripped from today's textbooks. Television continues to educate, sometimes by stealth. Vanuatu's first ever TV drama, Love Patrol, which debuted way back in 2007, was created to educate viewers about HIV and AIDS while simultaneously providing an entertaining story. Back in the US, the University of Southern California, the Center for Disease Control and the National Cancer Institute have their own award for educational television. The Sentinel Awards are given each year to programs that address health and medical issues in their storylines. The most recent nominees included Grey's Anatomy for an episode involving a recurring homeless patient whose drinking obscures a serious condition, Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel for exploring post-traumatic stress disorder and Elementary for its look at drug addiction. Days of Our Lives won the daytime drama category for the episode Carolyn Brady Battles Alzheimer's, an unflinching look at the crippling medical condition known as Carolyn Brady. (laughs) They also provide resources for television writers and producers, and they offer tip sheets on broad range of topics including influenza, toxic mould, smallpox, cancer, autism, motor vehicle crashes, obesity, adolescent health issues, clinical trials and antibiotic resistance. If you manage to fit all of those topics into the one episode, the CDC will send you a complimentary fruit basket. (laughs) Because television remains teacher, mother, secret lover. In 1971, a UK survey found that 62% of homes had no telephone, 31% had no fridge, 10% still had no indoor lavatory or bath, But only 9% had no television. And it's thought that those sorts of numbers are common even in first world nations. In their report, The Good Things About Television, the Media Awareness Network cites studies showing television can help young people discover where they fit into society, develop closer relationships with peers and family, and teach them to understand complex social aspects of communication. A study in the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics showed that children's imaginative play can be positively affected by 
by television content and that educational television programming emphasises diversity which can improve children's racial attitudes. And a recent study from the University of London found that television viewing increased children's cognitive test scores. Well done, television. Good work. Before I end my lecture, and what a lecture it's been... A couple more notes on Major the Right Honourable the Lord Reith, as he was somewhat bizarrely titled at his death. When he was in charge of the BBC, he was faced with the problem of how to tell people about the radio programs on offer and when they could be heard. The newspapers believed that the BBC schedule should be paid advertising, but Gordon Selfridge, department store owner and Jeremy Piven look-alike, booked advertisements for his store in the Pall Mall Gazette and offered Reith the opportunity to include the schedules within his ads. The Gazette sales went up, which gave Reith the idea of starting a magazine entirely based around the BBC listings. He named this The Radio Times, and when it first appeared in September 1923, it was such a huge success, the print run of 285,000 could not match demand. The BBC board was so impressed, they suggested Reith take a share of the profits, a proposal that would have quadrupled his salary. But the Director-General refused, explaining, I would have thought it hardly proper to accept the money. Try and imagine that happening today. (laughs) Just try. And finally, when the Independent Television Authority was created on 30 July 1954, it ended the BBC's monopoly on broadcasting. Lord Reith spoke against this decision in the House of Lords where he said somebody introduced Christianity into England and somebody introduced smallpox, bubonic plague and the Black Death. Somebody is minded now to introduce sponsored broadcasting. Need we be ashamed of moral values or of intellectual and ethical objectives? It is these that are here and now at stake. Thank you, Petra. Thank you, Petra. I do love the idea that commercial television is equivalent to smallpox, bubonic plague, and the Black Death. <laughs> and Christianity, apparently. <laughs> that, that, that bit is very confusing. Yeah. I don't know what he was trying to, trying to I don't say. I know what there. he was trying to say. Rob, there. you, as well as being an award winning performer, I assume, um, uh, have also. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> you also work as an educationalist. I do. You do. Um, what, what do you feel about television and education? Um, well, uh, being a teacher and being a drama teacher as well, uh, television is very helpful because that's all we do. We just play videos for the entire time, <laughs> as everyone thinks. Um, uh, but uh, for me, when it comes to uh, Doctor Who and uh, what I've learned from it, uh, Doctor Who's been very helpful in sort of like finding my way as a teacher. And uh, one of the first rules I needed when I started teaching full-time was I always thought to myself, what would the doctor do? So sort of like when I was feeling low or depressed or feel like giving up, I'd always think, what would the doctor do to change my way around? Since uh, 2007, my uh, mantra has been do exactly the opposite of what Mr G does. Um, But that whole moral compass that the Doctor has and why I became so obsessed with Doctor Who has been my, you know, my main drive to become a teacher. I don't try and... I don't show up in, in costume and I don't be one of those type of uh, uh, clichés that you see in all those old movies or TV shows, but just the moral compass of what the Doctor follows I use pretty much every day. I still do now. Every day I wake up and I go, what am I doing this for? That's right, I remember. And this, did you have life-changing experiences through Doctor Who? Well, I developed a terror of Daleks before I even saw the series. 
Because my dad's game when I was little was to play Chasey, but he'd chase me around going, exterminate, exterminate. Best dad ever. Yes. But it was terrifying. It was the most amazing, scary game in the world. And then I'm eight years old and I'm watching Remembrance of the Daleks for the first time and there they are. And they're going up a staircase. So to this day I do have this mild terror of not just Daleks but robots and cyborgs. of And stairs. (laughs) Yes, but that's just because I'm very lazy. (laughs) It is a useful thing, I think, in life, though, to know to avoid cyborgs. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I carry that lesson with me every day. <laughs> well, let's go, let's go back to the shallow end of the pool for a moment, though. Um, we did actually ask also our audience, but also online, before we started, things people had learnt from Doctor Who. Just to give you a few examples, um, Scott has told us, I've learnt you can solve any crisis by running down a few corridors. Mm, true. <laughs> Janet McLeod said, I learnt that a quick chop to the side of the neck fells any foe. <laughs> and that midnight blue velvet and a frilly shirt are actually quite manly. <laughs> But this is the thing I'm really interested in. Bert Murphy said, I learned the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second thanks to Professor Amelia Rumsford and the Stones of Blood. Mm-hmm. She is so good. So She's great. I'm wondering, are there any sort of uh, old specific things like that that you learned from Doctor Who? Ben? Yeah, I, well, I mean, because I, I started watching really, really young, so a lot of my first exposure to certain science concepts and other sort of bits of factual information came through Doctor Who. I, I thought of up a few and I, I wrote them down. Um, I certainly had never heard of antimatter before I saw the the three doctors and the idea that if antimatter and matter uh, you know come into contact they annihilate each other which is a real scientific concept nothing else in the three doctors makes any scientific sense <laughs> it should be said and, and if and it, there's also an awful lot of stuff i realize i've learned from doctor who that's just not right <laughs> including anything they've ever said about black holes ever uh, i think ben if, ben if you're talking about uh, the three doctors and something being not right you have to actually say it is not true <laughs> And then I... And and that, ladies and gentlemen, is a drama degree from Wagga. (laughs) Three years, people. Right there. I did mention though in our science show that Amazing. the black holes thing. What I didn't realise though was that black holes were actually new. They like, were when, new. When they were in the Three Doctors, they'd only been named like within the last five years. I think that's astonishing that that really was a brand new concept being presented to the audience. And the nature of them and, and what people. I mean, you have to. I actually have to give the, particularly the Three Doctors a lot of slack when making up what happens in a black hole because they didn't really know at the time. Mm. I mean, they've never got it right since. But still, um, because it, that was the time when you know Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawking were still making. About you know certain aspects of black holes and whether you know one of them was right or one of them was wrong. Like there was so much being worked out in physics at that time, it was really interesting. So that was a big one, um, antimatter. And then when I started writing down other stuff, I realised a lot of it comes from uh, the Peter Davison era because um, that was sort of what was on TV when I first started watching. So I learned about uh, recursion. Okay, you know, the recursive uh, number theory, so when a, um, which comes into complexity and also to chaos uh, mathematics. So it's the idea that uh, something has an equation, the output of that equation then feeds back into the equation again. And you see that a lot in biology. So when you're talking about populations of animals going up and down, the um, number of um, animals in a population at the end of a year will feed into the start of the year when the seasons come round, and so it'll feed back. So you get this sort of, yeah, recursion of numbers happens a lot in nature. Um, I learned about Escher. Mm-hmm. Doctor Who? I'd, I'd never heard of Escher. Uh, and then I saw Castro Valva. I'm like, this is really cool. And then um, I lived in um, Junee, near Wagga Wagga. 
uh, for a year when I was growing up. And There's in the a high correction centre there. They, <laughs> they built it while I was there. Coincidence? <laughs> but the thing was, I, 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 so I knew who MC Eshin was because I said, this is really weird, like people walking upside down on staircases and I went and looked it up in, in books um, because we didn't have the internet then. Mm. I learned about the English Civil War. Like I didn't learn any English history in my entire school career. Like, we learned nothing. So anything I know about English history, I learned all of the... Originally through Doctor Who. So I learned about, like, you know, the Magna Carta. I learned about the, uh, the Fire of London. Uh, I learned well, I found about, like, from the Highlanders, <laughs> I found out about, like, the Jacobite Rebellion. So mm. I've just uh, come back from Edinburgh, where I did Who Me there for the Fringe Festival. And my wife and I went on a three-day tour called McBackpackers. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and we went on this tour, and this guy was awesome. Like, he had big, grey-type hair, and he wore a kilt the whole time and both my wife and I had a crush on him but he started talking about the Jacobite Rebellion and Bonnie Prince Charlie and I turned to my wife and I said it's from Doctor Who it's from Doctor Who it's from Doctor Who and my wife said no that's from history (laughs) she's a keeper (laughs) she's very very tolerant (laughs) she's certainly more connected to reality so Uh, but yeah, so there's a whole list of those sorts of things. And I, I wanted to mention too, because you mentioned the, the Peter Davison era, and I actually think Christopher H. Bidmead, who was a script editor and, and writer at the time, it, it does not get the praise he deserves. I, I think he, as a, as a small child, he blew my mind um, by putting these real scientific principles into things. The one I really remember is entropy. I learned yeah. about oh, the absolutely. concept of entropy. And this is the actual piece of script from Logopolis. This is what um, the fourth doctor says when describing what it is to Andrick. He says, entropy, the more you put things together, the more they keep falling apart. And that's the essence of the second law of thermodynamics and I never heard a truer word spoken. And the thing is, that's not necessarily an exact description of entropy, but it's a poetic description that I remembered. And then I learned later on. You know, it, it, like you were saying, it's, it's the gateway drug to learning, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, yeah, it really is. To actually learning real... Correct, factual stuff. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to worry, John, about Chris Vase Bidmead not getting the praise he deserves. Just listen to the audio commentaries and he praises himself all the time. I think someone has to. <laughs> so Liz, what have you learnt from The Good Doctor? What, what book learning came to you through the show? Here's a new Who example. After The Girl in the Fireplace aired, I read masses about Madame de Pompadour. I read Nancy Mitford's biography, which is amazing because she is so dismissive of anyone who isn't as witty and clever as she is. And it's just lucky that Madame de Pompadour was witty and clever. (laughs) And then I got to wondering why there were no Mitfords in Doctor Who, and I think that's a real oversight. But yes, Madame de Pompadour, for about a year I was almost a self-educated expert on her. I've forgotten most of it now. I could never pronounce any of it because most of it's French. But, yeah, it was a really interesting time of history to read about and something that I had never encountered before Doctor Who. That's brilliant, because that's, yeah, where the show's at its best. Yeah, I yeah. Think. When the show started, and they would often do these stories that were the... They were meant to be the history that the kids were learning at school. Yeah. Uh, or had learned at school, so the French Revolution, Aztecs. It's funny watching the French Revolution one now, because I know nothing about the French Revolution. And I find myself going, but hang on, aren't they the baddies? They sound <laughs> like the baddies. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know what's going on. I often think that it's less important to be historically accurate because if you're interesting then kids will go oh yeah I want to read more about that and then they hit the library, they hit the internet they hit the Wikipedias as I'm told they do these days they and hit the YouTubes. I must admit, I was a little bit disappointed when the show came back that the Doctor went from quoting poetry and Shakespeare which mm. he often did back in the olden days to more quoting Kylie Minogue. Which uh, is nice but but, but 
I do think an episode like the Shakespeare Code, for example, mm. will probably get kids interested in looking at Shakespeare. Yeah, and... I, I adore that episode mm. just because how, you know, it's got all the Shakespearean quotes in there, so the Shakespeare nerds go, yeah, forsooth. Um, <laughs> but it, it is that case of, like what Russell T. Davis said when he first started Doctor Who, he said this to Stephen Moffat, he said, I want him to be the smartest guy in the room, but he's the smartest guy at the pub. So he's not mm. there talking, you know, saying all those old catchphrases like, oh, my giddy twaddle or whatever like that. Just to, he's the smartest man in the room, but he speaks normally. And so that was the same thing with Shakespeare. Everyone was, had this perceived view of him, and then the first thing he does come out and says, shut your stupid mouths. You go, awesome! And mm. playing Shakespeare as a guy of the time. He was cool, he was sexy, he had bad teeth. Awesome. Wrapping it up with Harry Potter and that media that's incredibly familiar to the child audience as well. Yeah. Something they're very passionate about. Exactly, exactly. We had people like Stephen Coppins told us that he learnt there's no point being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. (laughs) And we had that humanity can be the biggest enemy of the universe from Sam Streeter. One thing I've learned from Doctor is that neutron flows have a polarity, but we discussed that back in the science (laughs) episode. At this point, Ben's hair is on fire. <laughs> Speaking of which, though, Peter Bars learned that hats of various styles are cool. <laughs> but this is a big one from uh, Nicholas J. Johnson. actually quoting here Craig Ferguson, the, the, the Tonight Show host. If there is any hope for any of us in this giant explosion in which we inhabit, then surely this is it. The triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and cynicism yes. is what he learnt from Doctor Who. And if you haven't seen that, we just should say, seek that out. It, when he had Matt Smith on the show, he wanted to do this cold oh. open because he's a huge Doctor Who fan and really old friend of Peter Capaldi. They were in a band in together. In a band together. Um, best and he, thing ever. he wanted to do a cold open for that episode of the show where it was him dancing with a bunch of people to the orbital version of the Doctor Who theme song and him singing over the top of it about what Doctor Who was about to educate his audience. And it didn't end up going to air, but you can find it on YouTube and it's amazing. And that, the idea that the show is about yeah, romance over brute force and cynicism is a, is a beautiful summation yeah, yeah. of that worldview. So in a more philosophical way, what have you learned from Doctor Who? Well, for me, because I came into it when I was 17, so I didn't have that point of being raised on Doctor Who and and finding out things for the first time. Um, In many ways, I found out a lot of stuff afterwards, but it was more about what, like I was talking about earlier, it's the philosophy, it's the moral uh, code of the Doctor that I really got into. And it is that fact of I grew up in a country town in New South Wales, so our heroes were all football stars or cricket stars or, you know, the A-team and stuff like that. So, Or even Star Wars. I'm a huge mm. Star Wars fan, but, you know, it's mostly, you know, brute force that wins. Um, but it's that case of the Doctor coming in and using his guile, using his wit, and I was a huge Sherlock Holmes fan as a kid. So the Doctor was the next extension of that, being able to use smarts and intelligence and charm and, you know, improvising off the top of his head to come up with ideas, and that's inspired me to go into improvisation as well. So it's that, it's that deeper side of the Doctor that I really get onto. And from later years, I've also found out that the best way to cure any situation uh, is genocide. No, no, not that yeah. He goes to that quite a lot in the classic and modern series. But yeah, it's that whole, you know, you don't need to be the, the strongest person in the room. You don't even have to, you know, you may be the smartest person in the room, but you don't need to let people know. That's what I like about the classic series. He just shows up. Nobody knows who he is. He comes in, does his stuff, and leaves. And it doesn't have to, you know, it's what needs to be right. It may not be good, it may not be pretty, but it's the right thing that needs to be done. I actually learnt from Romana that 
you can be... Because I was just out of uni when I encountered Classic Who again and I was very depressed and I was in a job I didn't care for and it was kind of a low point of my life. And I learned that you can be a fresh graduate and very inexperienced and you don't even have the respect of the scriptwriters, let alone, you know, the universe. And you can still go through with poise and you can become more confident and you can have fun and you can be not just the smartest guy in the room but also the smartest girl in the room. And while the doctor flails around and makes a big fuss, she's the one in the background getting things done. And that really inspired me at that time and it was weird to say but a big help in my life that that year. There's something connected to what you're both saying that I realised this week. Ben and I were part of a spoken word gig about Doctor Who the other night, and I talked about Barbara Wright, who is mm. obviously the best person who's ever been on the show ever. It's a fact. And, that here. That and, here. and the thing that occurred to me when I was writing this piece about Barbara was that other science fiction shows in particular, people are in them because they're either well-trained mm. mercenaries or they're FBI agents. Or, they're Starfleet officers. Yeah, or, or if, if they're not that, it's because they've been chosen they are special and, you know, like Buffy or the Tomorrow People. Like they're, they're... And Doctor Who was a show in which these people are just shop assistants and air stewards and teachers. They are completely ordinary people. Absolutely. Who are thrown into these worlds in which they have to be better. Yes. You know, it's a show about how everyone can be better and everyone can succeed and everyone can win and overcome evil. And I was looking up this thing which I summed it all up, which is from the 11th Doctor, when um, he asks in The Christmas Carol, who the woman is. And Sardik says, nobody important. And the doctor says, nobody important? Blimey, that's amazing. You know that in 900 years of time and space, I've never met anybody who wasn't important before. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's probably the most important thing we can learn from Doctor Who. Yeah, it's like in um, Father's Day as well, with, you know, Eck. Eck is there and trying to sort out the issues of the, the Reavers coming in and there's that couple from the 80s that are just about to get married and go, well, you know... We're not that important. Don't worry about us. And the doctor's there going, you know, I've travelled all and done all these amazing things, but I'll never have a life like yours. You know, the two of you found each other and you're perfect for each other. And, you know, you're going to have an amazing life, the two of you together. I'll never have that. And, and just... sometimes, sometimes the series sort of falters in that, like um, the 10th Doctor complaining that he's going to die saving Wilf. And Wilf is amazing. I would happily die to save Wilf's life. <laughs> But overall, over 50-odd, well, 50 years, um, it's been really consistent in that sort of positive humanism. We will ask the audience here as well to leave questions or comments for us about what they've learned from Doctor Who. They are amazing questions. What one have you got to start with? Uh, Let's go with this one. Um, What I learned from Doctor Who, I learned to read via the Target novels. Uh, Tim Cabb says, I read every one in the Melbourne Eastern Regional Library System. (laughs) Actually... Tim was telling me beforehand, actually, he mentioned as we were writing that down, that he learned to read. He said, seriously, they had a, a reading, um, like it was a period you had to read at school. Yeah. And so he would read these Doctor Who books. And it got to the point where he'd read them all and then was getting a bit narky. They didn't have the rest of them. Going, you know, <laughs> do you have the Zygon one or do you not? <laughs> well, that would have confused them because it was called Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> do you have the Zygon one? I don't know what you're talking about. And, and I should say, too, we did do a show about, at another library, we did a show about the Tarka books. You can find that on our website, splendidchaps.com. It's a great listen, that one. Books, yes, it's wonderful. Um, oh, here we go. Um, Claudia says, when I was eight, I won a trivia quiz because of the end of the world. <laughs> oh, wow. I do, where's Claudia? What, what question could you answer because of the end of the world? And they were like, how long will it be before the sun expands and destroys? That's fantastic. Uh, but Claudia, also, you also said, um, 
you learned that Britain used to have police public call boxes, which is pretty... I mean, because when you think about it... It's a Nowadays, like for the last 20, 30 years, there's... I mean, there are still a few here and there, but they don't use them anymore. And in fact, they've, they've just knocked down the last few in the last... Five years or so. I, we don't even of... have normal phone boxes anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 let alone. I do have that thing, actually, I must say that that is a very Doctor Who fan thing. Like we were saying, I've watched a documentary about police call boxes, mm. you know, which I would never have done. <laughs> yeah. If I it watched wasn't that for same the Doctor one, narrated it, by Colin Baker. It was really good. It was so good. <laughs> it, was, it was so good. Um, oh, okay. This, this is a really good one. This is a question. Dear panel, I have wasted, in inverted commas, a lot of study time watching TV. Is there anything you haven't learned because of Doctor Who? (laughs) That question was signed, The Procrastinator. (laughs) Who's obviously another renegade. I'll be back, maybe. (laughs) That's a great question. Sometime in the future. After I finish watching this box set of season four. (laughs) I'm going to start with Liz. Liz, what have you not learned because of Doctor Who? I'm not saying that I failed Latin, but I did really badly at Latin because I was much more interested in talking about Doctor Who on the internet that year. (laughs) And this was bad because I was doing a degree in classical Roman history and Latin was kind of a prerequisite. What haven't I learnt from Doctor (laughs) Who? Um, I haven't learnt uh, how to be an excellent baseball player. Mm. I never wanted to be a baseball player, but there's nothing about baseball and Doctor Who, so I guess uh, there's that. What about Petra? We, we haven't really... Well, I mean, what have you learned from Doctor Who? Or Actually, not this, is, this is a good thing, cause we, and I know Petra was worried about us outing her like this, but when Petra started this journey, she was, she was Doctor Who adjacent. You know, she was... <laughs> you were aware of its I was, existence. I was in a parallel universe, perhaps, Ooh. maybe. Like yes, in Fringe. Okay. And we... She was like Anna Torv, and we brought her onto the show. I we got say, sucked in! by some force that is John Richards and Ben McKenzie and I've never said it in that order so that's kind of freaking me out. And and the thing is I know you're a fan now because you have so much merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of this year got Sonic Screwdriver Wii remotes and uh, a Sonic Screwdriver um, TV remote. But probably more is the point, I've actually made a lot of Splendid Chaps merchandise just because I can. It's fun. I've got a mug that turns from black to, thank you, it's good, keep warm. (laughs) But what have you learned from from Doctor Who? Um, Well, I've definitely learned there's no wrong way to be a fan. Um, And that, yes, that's come about from our podcast, but um, from the community that I've had a great part of this year. It's been fantastic. There's one more question I want to ask, and this, I think, is is my favourite question that we've been given today. And and maybe I think you'd be a great person to kick off answering this. Um, David from Kilsyth asks, this show's all about what did you learn from Doctor Who. Using your life experiences, what could you teach the Doctor? Yes, it's a good one. I'd teach the Doctor that it's okay to be a ginger. And have breasts. It's a fair call. I would probably tell the doctor it's okay to not be the smartest guy in the room. Mm. Like, you don't have to be that guy all the time. You can take a back seat. I don't know why I'm reminded, but Adam Ford was on the spoken word thing we did the other night. He did this amazing piece. He wrote this piece about how Donna pretended to have her brain wiped by the doctor in order to make him feel okay. 
Wow. Because she was cleverer than he was. And he had failed the test of treating her as an equal and she knew he would fail the test of seeing her as superior. So she knew it was okay to pretend her brain was wiped and go back to the world, but she had amazing adventures and she took Wilf into space, but he had to promise not to tell the Doctor. And... (laughs) He made made her own TARDIS out of stuff that she found. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful way of seeing the show and I thought that was and that was part of that thing of going it's alright for the Doctor not to be the guy like he could not be the guy occasionally yeah in line with that I think the Doctor has taught me it's okay to not be alone you need people around you you know you need people around you to keep you human I would quite like to teach the Doctor that well if I can like sway his regeneration options just a little because he does imprint on people occasionally I'd, like, I'd really like him to regenerate into a woman. I really don't care, like, tall, short, thin, fat, old, ginger. young. Ginger is... Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. <laughs> Let's not go crazy, all right? I know we're down in the bunker, but it's not the end of the world, all right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not ginger. That's a step too far. <laughs> ben McKenzie and Pedro Elliott are not amused. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Doctor Who can... Because we remember when it went off air and disappeared. Yeah. Will it, can it do that again now, do you think? Or is it... Like, you think, it, could it stop and then come back? Could it still stop? It's hard to imagine. It's so huge now and so loved again. That's, well, it it's... sort of did, though, didn't it? I mean, and it, and it? I mean, they keep changing how they do it. I mean, they had that year where it was just the three specials, and then you've had now where they break the seasons up into half, so you have um, gaps between when there's new Doctor Who twice a year instead of once a year. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, can, can I just say, because Moffat is the... Mo, Stephen Moffat is the legend of, you know, promoting up shortcomings. So he's there going, we didn't get Eccleston... But we've got John Hurt, <laughs> which is pretty cool. But he's there yeah. going, you know, I'm not giving you a full 13 episodes in one year, but I'll split it up. Hey, hey, hey. And everyone went, no. no you we- may be on fire, but how warm, how are, warm are you? Are you? <laughs> how warm is it here? That's called reframing, actually, oddly enough. I just remembered it's actually, a, a, it's, it's, a, it's both a business and a cult practice. Mm. Um, <laughs> but reframing is a way of yeah, taking things and, and things. changing the meaning through adjusting the... Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at Stephen Moffat as the head of a cult. <laughs> and he loves it. He loves it. The one thing I did want to say, the other thing that Doctor Who taught me was all about television. And mm. I never really cared that much about television until I started watching Doctor Who because I, there wasn't anything that captured my imagination in the same way. Mm. And then um, also there was nothing else where you could find out about as much about how the show was made as Doctor Who. I brought a couple of books in just to quickly show the visual podcast audience. These two books taught me a lot of what I know about how you make television, or at least what I used to know before I (laughs) made some very bad television. Um, This is uh, Doctor Who, the making of a television series, and then uh, Doctor Who, special effects. And these things taught me, you know, all sorts of things. Like, I never never heard of uh, green screen or CSO, as they insisted on calling it at the BBC. It's funny, though, because we've heard before, Star Trek inspired a lot of people to become scientists, in particular, engineers, a lot of that sort of thing. Doctor Who inspired a lot of people to become writers, and yeah. it kind of seems slightly disproportionate, like just those two shows in particular, that people watching Doctor Who, and I think maybe because it was such a dress-ups for the mind show, you know, it, it was a show that, that, it was cheap, and it had to work its way around things, and it invited you to fill in the, well, the gaps. It also inspired me, it's definitely an inspiration, part of why I wanted to become an actor and a performer, because I thought, I want to do something as cool as that, and I can't really travel through time or meet aliens, because I'm, you know, a sensible person, but... I can pretend to do it for money. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's almost as good. <laughs> like a normal person. Yeah, like a normal person. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was quite good. And interestingly, um, I did watch uh, a science documentary about the science of Doctor Who, most of which are awful, but there is a new one coming out with Brian Cox, which is probably good. But quite a lot of scientists in the UK, um, particularly people who go into space science, they, they have been influenced by Doctor Who. And I think the interesting thing about Doctor Who is that the breadth of science that's in it is much, it's much broader than what you get in Star Trek. In Star Trek, mm. it's all space and particles and weird techno babble but in Doctor Who there's other stuff as well like you might meet archaeologists or um, you might see dinosaurs or you might, there might be weird biology as well as weird space stuff and so it's, it's yeah it's got a broad range of stuff now I have been holding off on this I actually do use Doctor Who in class um, I do a unit with my uni, uni years like year 7 and 8 uh, where they have to do horror stories and when I tell them about horror stories, the kids always mention the movies like Saw films and all those type of stuff, blood and gore. And so what I do is I, I get them to write their own original horror story um, and I show them an episode of Doctor Who to show them that it, you can be scared by not using blood and gore. You can use you know certain techniques and certain styles and that's what Doctor Who does so brilliantly. So I show them Tooth and Claw as an example. And a lot of them have never seen Doctor Who. By the end of that 45 minutes, they're just so caught up in it and the moments of how to make, you know, good filmmaking, good television making, good acting, good set design, all that type of stuff comes together and, and, you know, the kids get inspired by that and create their own horror stories. I was doing some screenwriting lecturing at one point and um, I was sort of just filling in for two weeks with someone else. So they said, just come in, bring examples of good and bad things and then talk through those and then, you know, work on, on projects from them. So I showed... Um, a clip from Fearless, the, the Peter Weir movie, as oh, an example yeah. of a really yes. great yeah. piece of, of filmmaking. Um, and then I showed a bit from The Room, the Tommy Wiseau <laughs> film, yes. as an example of bad filmmaking. <laughs> if you haven't seen The Room, oh, absolutely see it. I showed, I showed the sequence where the mother comes around and declares offhand that she has cancer and then never mentions it again. Um, <laughs> and we did a great so exercise bad. from that where we got them all to rewrite that scene and make it watchable. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. It was great. But then for Doctor Who, I actually played Blink, and I played roughly, I think, 15 minutes of it, because it's seamless. It's a seamless piece of filmmaking. It's just astonishing. Barrels through the plot without feeling like it's rushed, and just a gorgeous part. And then uh, for the other side, I played some of Voyage of the Damned. (laughs) Good choice. We're all being chased. Let's stop and eat snacks for a bit. (laughs) Let me tell you my whole life story just before I die. Oh, so we're meant to care about that. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, we, we, we hope you've learned some things. I hope you've learned some things, Ben, because you're looking a bit lost there. No, I, that's because I've learned so much, John. Oh, your head's so full, you'll I'm, explode. I'm reorganising my brain. If you remember the doctor, you'll either die or fall over slightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one article which I... I, I <laughs> something I did read, which is ben probably worth... is ham acting. <laughs> I learned it from the best, Rob Lloyd. <laughs> There was a website called Geek Dad that I read a piece called Everything I Know About Parenting I Learned from Doctor Who by oh. Kevin McCase. It's worth Uh-oh. looking up. Um, but I just wanted to, to mention two quotes he has in here, which I think are lovely. One is from John Pertwee in The Time Warrior, who mentions, a straight line may be the shortest distance between two points, but is by no means the most interesting. That's my favourite quote of all time. And a lovely one from, uh, from Fear Her, I think, actually, which is, there's a lot of things you need to get across this universe. Warp drive, wormhole refractors. You know the thing you need most of all? You need a hand to hold. Oh, that's very sweet. 
You know, my, my favourite one along those lines is actually from the, the telemovie when the doctor's watching everybody trying to explain all the weird phenomena that's happening and he just goes, I love humans, always seeing patterns and things that aren't there. And I thought, you, you have put your finger on the problem with human beings. Um, and that, that led me to learn a lot more about psychology and how human brains work and, and the fact that we do literally see lots of patterns and things that just aren't there because our brains are wired for it. Well, we hope you've all learned some things here today as well in the bunker and will you please thank our special guests, Rob Lloyd and Liz Barr. And, of course, you can find all of the episodes on SplendidChaps.com. So, Ben, what's left for this show? Well, uh, as you know, we end... Well, those of you who've been before will know that we end every episode with a performance, and usually it's a musical performance. Uh, but for our other show that we did in the library, we had a reading from one of the, frankly, awful Doctor Who Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, and so today we thought, because we are, again, in a library, we would have something else that was not musical but more wordy, and so we have a wonderful spoken word performance from the one and only performance poet and spoken word artist, Emily Zoe Baker, ladies and gentlemen. And until next time we meet, thank Thank you. you. It's good. Keep warm. My name is Emily Zoe Baker, but I'm not really Emily Zoe Baker. I was christened Emily Moyle. Moyle means Jewish circumciser. It's true. And although I do get a little bit Jewish when I'm drunk or unexpectedly called to make a speech at a party, that's kind of where it begins and ends in terms of lineage. I got called Emily Oil with a boil when I was at school, and I hated it. Moyle's the family name on my mother's side. I never met my father by blood, and I know nothing about him. So there were no alternative name options there. I had to stick with Moyle all the way to the oily, boily end of high school. By the time I turned 21, I realised I could do whatever the hell I wanted, including taking myself off to Deedpole, where I became Emily Zoe Baker. So why did I choose Baker? It has absolutely no family connection. There's nothing even remotely Bakerish, no matter how many twigs you snap on my one-sided family tree. I chose it instinctively. I chose it out of the air. But when I thought about it more later, I realised why it had resonated with me. Why around 6pm every weeknight, it felt like I definitely made the right choice of surname. It was because of Doctor Who. I'd subconsciously chosen the name Baker because when I was a kid, I wanted Tom Baker to be my dad. It's true. I loved Tom Baker. I even thought he looked a little bit like me with his mop hair and his, you know, bold nose. (laughs) I even thought that maybe it was possible, seeing as I didn't know my real dad, with exquisite kid logic, I thought that maybe I could be related to him. I wanted to hang out with him, be a jelly baby so that he could put me in his pocket. I could bounce around as he strode around in that urgent way, scarf trailing. I dreamed of taking little naps in his curly hair. I wanted his soft, pita-bread voice to wrap me up like a falafel. When I, was, when I was little, I imagined him stretching that scarf from his shoulders to mine, looking down and smiling and telling me that everything was fine. I felt safe when he was on screen. I loved the way he would joke with terrifying monsters, telling the evil Time Lord legend Morbius that perhaps he should change his name to Popery because that's how lame he was. <laughs> 
He'd mock the master, wisecrack with the Wirren, sneer at the Zygons and quip with the crinoid. There wasn't much that scared Tom Baker. He beamed fatherly confidence that won my 10-year-old heart like a giant toy at an elephant fair. But I was worried about him sometimes. When it came to encounters with the Daleks, those metallic hexagons of horror, I was frozen with concern, their heartless, Nazi, gliding approach. And Davros, that shriveled mung bean of malevolence, that black goji berry in a bin, was the most terrifying of all. It turns out I needn't have worried. Tom Baker knew what he was doing. He knew how to deal with such a menace. I remember once he slung his hat over one of the Dalek's eye stalks. The Dalek wheeled around screaming, malfunction, loss of visual control, vision impaired, malfunction, malfunction, and then pretty much blew himself up. That was my first lesson from a paternal figure. At the time, chaos ruffled the carpeted floors of my family home. Hard words were being fired about. Insults lasered across the lounge room and divorce papers bombed my mother and stepfather's bedroom. Peace seemed like a million parsecs away. I desperately wanted to lie around on the floor of the TARDIS, play chess with canine, discuss black holes and infinity of space and time, the fabric of existence, talk about the thin line between good and evil with my broad, smiling, bug-eyed TV dad. If things got extra heated at home, I'd try and smile to make a joke or ask the old girl TARDIS to deliver me from harm. There's a Tom Baker scene I remember really vividly. The doctor is in a room alone with Davros and he asks the evil little scrotum like Philip Ruddock sitting on (laughs) R2-D2 whether he had somehow managed to create a deadly, highly contagious virus that could destroy all other forms of life, whether he would unleash it, would he let loose an unstoppable universal pandemic? And Davros said, an interesting conjecture. Because back then, before Michael Bay and CGI and 3D, things moved slowly enough for despicable alien villains to get down with philosophical hypotheticals. (laughs) Davros said that he'd love to possess such power over life and death, to know that he could kill everyone with the press of a button. He said he'd do it. And suddenly, Tom Baker, the dad I always wanted, grabbed Davros's tiny woolen sock of a hand and held it over a switch on the control panel of Davros's space wheelchair. Davros wobbles in terror and says, don't touch that, it controls my life support system. I'll die in 30 seconds. Because that's where you'd keep that switch right at the front, right? You'd put that at the front, wouldn't you? Like, you know, you're Davros and you're having a cup of tea and you accidentally lean forward. That's very, oh shit, you're dead. Oh my God, you'd put it underneath at least, wouldn't you, with a key? I mean, really? Anyway, Tom Baker looks into Davros's fleshy eye sockets or that third eye that was stuck on and he flips the switch. I gasped, a 10-year-old's gasp. Davros gasped like a guppy on the riverbank. Then Tom Baker flips the switch back on. Even though he had the chance to totally unlife Davros, he doesn't. Davros... He could have destroyed the evil Davros simply and easily, ended the multiverse's problems with the flick of a switch, but he chose not to. Why? Somehow, probably well after the BBC radiophonic workshop had torn my mind a new one with that awesome scream sound effect that led to the throbbing glory of the Doctor Who soundtrack, (laughs) 
I absorbed that it had been a lesson in something important, something more than just that despite their zappy lasers, Daleks and their little pruny leader were stupidly vulnerable to hats, to people just standing behind them and, of course, (laughs) to stares. No, there was a larger message from my baker father. He was displaying the truth that good and evil aren't necessarily absolutes, easily determined that you can see your enemies as victims of themselves, that instead of violence and force, you should seek to solve problems with logic and kindness. Subconsciously, I think those seeds were planted. Little tiny shoots sprouted from my 10-year-old heart. I knew after that day I'd be different, trying harder to understand why people like my parents found themselves fighting and not hating them for it, but trying to find a jelly baby way to help them stop it. And so many years later, as a grown adult making my way in the world, a phase of flamboyant felt hats and overlong scarves were almost behind me. I determined to make my own way and change my name to something I felt I could inhabit, wholeheartedly. Consciously or not, I chose to become a baker, a mop-headed force for reason and robot-taunting cleverness. And the fact that I later learned that Tom Baker married Lala Ward, the blonde Romana, and they broke up after just 16 months of fighting. It didn't ruin anything. I'll always be Emily Zoe Baker, daughter of Tom. Together, we have no home. We're time lords. We walk in eternity. And that brings us to the end of Splendid Chaps, A Year of Doctor Who. Thank you all for having joined us over the last 12 months. Petra will be here in one moment to read us the ending credits, but before she does, I'd like to remind you of our new upcoming project. Yes, we just can't give up this whole audio malarkey, and so we're joining together to make a brand new comedy series, a scripted narrative comedy entitled Night Terrace. Night Terrace follows the adventures of Anastasia Black, a retired scientist who may have stopped the old alien invasion in the past, as she discovers that her suburban house can travel through space and time. She's accompanied by Eddie, a young man who was selling electricity plans door-to-door, and they're occasionally helped or hindered by Sue, an annoyingly enigmatic woman who turns up where they go. It will be starring Splendid Champs Ben McKenzie and Petra Elliott, plus, in the lead role, a genuine name off the telly that you'll all go, oh, look, it's her. Very exciting. It's created and written by the Chaps and our good friend Lee Zachariah from the Bazira Project, and we'll be crowdfunding it come March. The scripts are being written, the costumes are being tried out. Oh, it's theatre for the mind. So, for more information, you'll find us at nightterrace.com, nightterrace.com, all one word, or on Twitter, at nightterrace. And we'll keep you updated through Splendid Chaps as well. It's going to be a great project, it's really exciting, we hope you'll be part of it. So for all of you who joined us for the year of Doctor Who that lasted 14 months, we say thank you so much. Thank you for being part of it, all our guests, all our musicians. And now, here's Petra. You have been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chats, Liz Barr, Rob Lloyd, and Emily Zoe Baker. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendorChaps.com and as SplendorChaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time we meet, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. <laughs> <laughs>